welcome to the 10 Streamer Podcast. I am sitting down with a new friend, Chris Hughes from Broken Arrow Ranch. Um, but the odd thing is, is you're not really a ranch, are you, Chris? <laughs> and no, I guess not. We're, we, we are a ranch, but we're not a ranch. Uh, so there is a Broken Arrow Ranch that's our residence and where I live with uh, my father and brothers and sisters and all of our all of our kids, but really the way that uh, our business works is we pull that mic up to you a little bit. Yeah, sure. Give our, that. We work with ranches all over the state. So um, actually, when this business started, it was it was called Texas Wild Game Cooperative, which um, the name changed uh, kind of in the mid '80s to Broken Arrow Ranch, just because I think it was it was a little bit more of an attractive name and. Um, uh, it, we found out that this the, the ranchers we were working with didn't didn't mind that another company with a ranch name was was coming onto their ranch. But the cooperative is probably a more accurate description of what we're what we're doing. And what do you do? What what are what are we here? <laughs> sure, we? yeah. So we're we're a wild game meat harvester, processor, and purveyor. Um, it's kind of all all of those things together. So there are thousands of non-native deer and antelope roaming all around Texas. Uh, some of these are on large acreage ranches. Some of these are on low fence properties. Um, we've done work with uh, state parks and National Wildlife Refuge, but basically there are a lot of these non-native, and that's a key word there that we'll, I'm sure we'll get into later, uh, animals that are running around Texas, and they need population control. They don't have natural predators here. Uh, there's a potential for them to outcompete native wildlife for natural food and forage. Um, and for these these ranch properties, they've got to do what they can to keep this population in check. Um, hunters certainly take you know some animals, but the volume of hunting is never going to keep up with the volume of animals that need to be taken off for kind of a natural, naturally sustainable population. And that's where we come in. So uh, we work with these ranchers, um, go out to their property and with a shooter, a skinner, a mobile processing unit and a government meat inspector. And we, we essentially go hunting. You know, we, we go out and harvest these animals by a uh, rifle shot. So it's a very humane process. Um, and then the animals are then, done initial processing there at the processing trailer in the field and then brought back to our plant uh, in Ingram, Texas. We'll, we'll go through the kind of aging process and butchering, fabrication, packaging, and then ultimately shipped out to restaurants and individuals all over the country. It's, it's a fascinating business. And I've, I've known about you guys for, well, since 2003, when I first had my first piece of venison. And I don't know if a lot of people know, but you cannot sell when you have venison in a restaurant. It is not native. You cannot sell whitetail mule deer. Mule deer. It's against the law, right? And so what we're looking at is exotics. And I reached out. So uh, Chris and I have spent some time together now, and I've interviewed him for a previous story. And what we're doing with this podcast is this is going to be a story on the Texas Monthly website. And whenever I do these, I usually interview someone over the phone, and I'm like, let's turn these into podcasts. And our previous podcast have been with the photographers I work with, good friends. But this is the first episode where we're sitting down with someone I'm doing a story on. 
that we've spent some time together. We spent all day last week together, mm-hmm. all day Thursday, rode around to pick up, um, kind of got to know each other. And so this is, this. Chris and I'll be talking about some stories that we've uh, already talked about. We'll be rehashing some things, uh, but they're a fascinating business. And when did y'all start? What year was that? Uh, this was started in 1983, founded by my father, uh, Mike Hughes. So a little, the backstory on that is that he had a, uh, he had a long career or a, a successful career as a commercial uh, diver offshore. Uh, and that company did, did well, um, grew to an international uh, publicly traded company, and then basically got to a point where um, he needed to step out of the day-to-day of that operation and moved out here to the Texas Hill Country. Um, he had already had some property out here. Uh, so mom and dad loaded up uh, the kids and we came out here and being a serial entrepreneur was always kind of looking for the next thing uh, to do. And in his, in his world travels had seen venison as a popular menu item on you know, restaurants all, you know, all over the world. But in the United States, it was essentially non-existent in the early eighties. And uh, what venison there was, was all imported uh, venison. There was no domestic source of venison. Where did that come from? Uh, New Zealand. New Zealand's uh, the world's largest producer of venison. I mean, just, they're just they're the 800-pound gorilla in the industry, and they produce a good product, but uh, it's a, it's an imported product. So he he saw this as kind of a a gap, you know, in the marketplace, and also moving out here, uh, there was a lot of concern around these non-native deer outcompeting the the native deer. And it, it turns out there's a lot of truth to that. It's, it's a probably a little more academic than it is practical because we've, we've certainly seen both whitetail populations, native whitetail populations and exotic populations grow. But, you know, there's, there's always a limit to, to everything. Um, so he went about saying, well, here's a potential food source or potential venison source with these non-native deer and antelope. Here's a potential marketplace in, in all of these restaurants that would like to have domestic venison. And he set off down the road trying to figure out how to make it work. And uh, one of the first things that he discovered was that, you know, there were no laws and rules that were would allow a business like this to exist. Uh, but there really weren't any rules or laws that would prohibit it <laughs> from existing. Uh, so, uh, he started working with, uh, Texas legislature to, to get some of these regulations put into place that would provide a framework, um, not only for himself, but also for, um, you know, he, he wanted to have these kind of these, these regulations in place because he knew that if he started this business, others would come behind him and try to do similar things. And, uh, he wanted to make sure that everything was going to be on the up and up and done well, done right, you know, and not destroy the industry just because you got a bad actor uh, in the arena. Um, so one of the first things that happened was, um, well, I guess he he went to the USDA and we can really get into the weeds of, of uh, regulatory uh, meat laws, but we won't we won't go there. But. Suffice it to say that the the USDA um, does not inspect venison when he asks them about doing it because it's not named in the Federal Meat Act. Um, if it's not inspected by USDA, 
it falls under FDA. If you go to the FDA, they're going to tell you they're not an inspection agency. As long as you don't hear from them, life's fine. You've probably done everything right. You haven't got anybody sick. Um, so he kept exploring a little bit more, a little bit more. And what he found was that it came down to municipal laws. You know, from a local health inspection standpoint, if you're at a restaurant, the local health guy is going to go and see, and on the rule books, it says it needs to come from an approved source, which just means it has to be inspected in, in some way, shape, or form by, by a government agency. So he started working with Texas Department of Ag. And they say that, well, we, we don't inspect wildlife. Wildlife is native game. That's, that's like the white-tailed deer and, and mule deer and things like that. The exotics had no classification at that time. They were, they were, they, they were brought here into Texas in the 30s. Populations grew. They continued to be you know, imported in this area and, and, and populations growing on ranches. But they just, you know, in, in the eyes of the, the law, they had no existence. And so he started, said the, the inspection agency said, we don't inspect wildlife. We only expect, inspect livestock. So he went to Texas legislature and uh, started talking with uh, Jim Hightower uh, and then ultimately with um, uh, uh, Mike Perry. Rick Perry. Oh, Rick Perry, I'm sorry. Rick Perry. Uh, <laughs> this is my favorite part of the story because yeah. Rick who, Perry. Who was a freshman uh, Democrat <laughs> representative at that time. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and, and talked with them to introduce a, a bill that they supported that would classify these exotics as livestock. And uh, it went through and it passed. And that's essentially what gave um, property owners uh, rights and ownership of the animals, of these exotic animals that were, that were on their property. And it gave them the right to buy, sell, trade, you know, essentially do, do whatever they wanted with these animals. And it also opened the door up for these animals to be inspected for meat. And that was, that was really the key, key start to this whole business. What year was that bill? Uh, you know, I don't know exactly what year that bill, but it would have been it would have been early eighties. Uh, it would have been this was started in eighty three, and so this is when a lot of this was happening. So it was probably around that kind of nineteen eighty two, nineteen eighty three timeframe. Were you living here in Ingram at that time? We were. We what, were yeah. what were you doing in 1983? <laughs> I think, let's see, in 1983, I think I was in first grade. So yeah. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of this was happening uh, without my awareness. Yeah. Uh, I was uh, buying a skateboard and trying to figure out how to skateboard in Snyder, Texas. Yeah. With, with the one other guy that skateboarded. <laughs> exactly. So that's, uh, your dad uh, is an engineer, correct? Right, engineer by training. Yeah. Uh, and so that's a very methodic thought process. It's right. like, instead of, trying to put the cart before the horse. He goes, I'm not going to tell. I'm not going to go ahead and share. I'm not going to show my hand. I'm going to uh, set all this up and um, establish this law first with the uh, Democratic representative Rick Perry, yeah. who was governor of Texas and ag commissioner and very, very, very nice looking politician. Mm -hmm. Well, and he, he, you know, he wasn't necessarily keeping it a secret what he was, what he wanted to do when this, he was very open about what he wanted yeah. to do. And I think that was a lot of the motivation behind it. Uh, and a lot of motivation of the support from, from department of ag and from, uh, the legislatures of this was a growing problem. This was something that was starting to be talked about in, in, uh, you know, ranching and livestock circles of, we have a growing 
exotic population that we need to figure out how we can control. So he was sharing with them that he was looking at mm-hmm. ultimately doing a meet because it seemed like we talked about in our very, very first interview a couple of years ago for another story was uh, he basically, they told him he needed to have, the USDA said he needed to have a place to inspect it. Mm-hmm. And then he built the trailer and they're like, what? This is not what we're talking about. Right, right. Yeah, so as a part of this process, um, he knew that trying to trap and transport these wild animals to a you know, kind of a traditional brick and mortar facility was just going to put so much stress on this animal that it was going to ruin the quality of the meat. And you know, quality was always kind of one of the number one uh, uh, motivators or, or at least, you know, factors that we wanted to get out of this product. We, you know, we knew that if this was going to be successful, it had to be a high quality product, especially for the restaurants we were, we were going to target high end restaurants. So he tried to figure out, well, if I can't take the animals to the plant, I need to figure out how to take the plant out into the field where the animals are and how, you know, how can this be done? And, and exactly. So when you go into the meat laws, uh, to build a new meat processing plant, they're they're very very specific for the for the good and the bad of these of these laws. Um, they're they're very um, process oriented as opposed to results oriented. Uh, and there's a whole debate around that. But in, instead of saying you can do it however you want and get a wholesome product at the end, you know, and 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 just let, help us determine it's a wholesome product at the end. The meat law philosophies are if you follow steps one through 15, you should get a clean product at the end. And then, of course, something happens and they've got to change it and they add steps 16 and 17 and 18. But it's a very, very process, very detail oriented set of regulations. And so it says that if you're going to have a meat processing plant, you've got to have hot water, you've got to have non permeable walls, it's got to be clean, it's got to have a certain amount of lighting. Um, kind of have restroom facilities, you know, so, you know, so on and so forth. All, all these different different items on a checklist, which there's a literal checklist that they bring to you when, to inspect your facility when you when you apply for an inspection application. So he just followed the list. You know, he 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 checked off every single box that they could possibly have on this list and built a processing plant on a trailer. And so when he submitted his application and they came out to inspect the facility, they said, well, we can't approve this. He's like, why not? Well, it's on a trailer. Well, you don't say anything in your regulations about it being on a trailer or not being on a trailer. All you say is I've got to have, you know, these, all of these items. I've got all of these items. And they kind of scratched their heads and thought about it. And I said, well, I guess you're right. And it was approved, and so that was that was the first government-approved mobile processing trailer, uh, you know, the, that existed anywhere in the world. Are other people using those now? They are. So um, it's certainly become more popular over the last probably you know eight years or so, uh, eight to ten years. Um, for a long, long time, we were the only one, and then there was a gentleman uh, that was working with a bunch of. Uh, cattle ranchers on the San Juan Islands in Washington, Washington State, uh, a very remote area. And so they were having a hard time uh, getting their cattle into, you know, getting slots at processing houses on the mainland. And, you know, it was a long way to transport. And so uh, he was looking for a similar solution. Instead of taking these animals out to some plant that's on the mainland, how can I take a plant out to 
you know, to these ranchers. And so, um, you know, with our knowledge and permission of what he was doing, came down here and you know, studied our trailer and looked at, you know, got a lot of the design aspects and took it up to Washington. And um, he got the first USDA approved mobile processing trailer. We, ours is Texas Department of Ag, again, because what I was talking about, we work with Texas Department of Ag and not necessarily USDA on the deer side. So we never had to go down the USDA route. Um, but with cattle, he needed the USDA uh, designation. And so he got that approved. And then once that was done, it kind of opened the door to a lot of other uh, producers to begin this, this kind of concept. There's not a lot out there, but there are a handful of mobile processing trailers. Yeah, y'all are cutting edge. Um, that's how I pitched the story. I know Texas Monthly likes a little bite size. And so I said, this is the Texas company that pioneered you know, the, the selling of wild game to mm-hmm. restaurants. And they that's a little, yes, the elevator pitch. And one, they like Texas company and they ranching. And uh, it, it's my first experience. And I've written about this and- Chris has probably heard the story three or four times now is I was um, at a restaurant in Dallas called Abacus. Very, very nice restaurant, 2003. And my uh, good friend worked there, was a server. And I was going to get the filet. Pretty standard thing. You know, filet, some sort of demi-glace. And he goes, well, we have broken arrow venison on the menu. And really, I, I had no concept of, I, you know, I don't know what I thought it was, but my experience with venison was I actually probably had, I probably had never eaten venison other than summer sausage or somebody's jerky. And it was gamey. And he said, no, this is really, really good. It's a special, probably the best thing on the menu tonight. I said, all right, bring it to me. And I was by myself, nice, fancy restaurant, <laughs> which no one eats in a restaurant like by themselves, but I knew <laughs> reading a book. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so he always gave me great treatment and he uh, recommended a wine and it was, the chef, the um, executive chef was Trey Wilcox, who was uh, on the Celebrity Chef. The owner is Kent Rathburn, 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 who I'm sure you know. Uh, Kent's very big character, and um, it came out as on a better risotto, and it was the best meal I've ever had up until this point. And I'll tell you about that <laughs> here in a little bit. It was the best meal by far. It was probably backstrap, and it was sliced and uh, rare, and it was so good. And it changed everything for me. Start made me put that little bug in my ear to start. Maybe I want to hunt. Maybe I can. And so that's what your product does that I think is really fascinating. And I don't know if it does this for everybody, but it's an experiential product. You can eat a steak. I've eaten a steak a million times. Mm-hmm. I don't ever want to go be a rancher. Right. I ate your product and I go, and that's when I learned, well, this finishing is an exotic. It's an axis because it says every time you order it, it's like axis finishing. And so I'm like, it put it in my head that I wanted to start hunting. I didn't actually hunt until 2019 was my first hunt mm-hmm. and it was well into my forties. Uh, but that set me on the path. And then a few years later, my wife and I were in Carmel by the sea at a restaurant called Basil. And I saw venison on the menu, which you know, Carmel by the sea is a hoity toity, <laughs> bougie little, yeah. little beach yeah. hamlet. And I was surprised they had venison on the menu and I asked the server, I go, where's, it didn't say on the menu where it came from. I said, where, where do y'all get your venison? She said, I don't know. Let me check. I go, I bet it's Broken Arrow. She goes back to the chef and comes back. She goes, how'd you know that? I go, I just know. I've, I've been, I don't, don't want to say I'm a fanboy of the company, but I've just, <laughs> it's such an interesting process. And in this world where everything is digital, where we've got AI coming, you're a very analog op- operation. 
Right. Yeah. There's there's a lot of this that's still very much done by hand. You'll never be replaced by AI <laughs> ever. <laughs> well, I feel pretty comfortable about that, and it, and even with the remote workplace uh, oh. concept, it's, it it doesn't it doesn't work. We've we've got to be here physically, hands on. Uh, you know, touching this product. It's you know, it's a very you know, it's a very tangible. Uh, tangible thing it's a very physical thing uh, it, it is to be a part of so. it is tactile yeah tactile. so let's uh dive into that uh last week uh, for this story chris invited me out to um observe one of their harvests and it was for neil guy and i'm very familiar with neil guy i'd had it before uh and it, you told me something earlier that uh, the usda classifies neil guy and and deer is all that's all venison, right? So venison, you know, venison's actually well, you know, it's the old Latin comes from Latin of uh, I think it's veneer to which was to hunt, and it used to be any hunted game was called venison. So if you look, you know, look back in old uh, old texts, I mean, rabbits and hare could be venison. Uh, you know, any anything that was hot, kind of field harvested would would be called venison, and then it eventually distilled down into the official USDA designation of any meat from deer and antelope. So that that is what is classified as venison. I, I did not know that because as, as we progress into this uh, experience, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the meal I had that was that surpassed this, the, the very, very first taste, 2003 to 2000, what, geez, that's 20 years. <laughs> that is a while. I never even thought about it. Uh, <laughs> And I've inter- that's quite a meal to remember for after 20 years. Yeah. I mean, I've had a million steaks. I can't think of all of them. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's uh, that's a testament to your product. So you invited me down uh, near Kingsville to uh, um, on a ranch. How, how big is the ranch that we harvested on? So the ranch we were working on uh, last week was about 240,000 acres. You, you pointed out something interesting as we were driving up and down the roads, you go that, you know, we're harvesting from a a place that's bigger than Rocky Mountain National Park. Yeah. I was like, if, if, if they're, if the animals are wild there, these are wild animals. Right. Exactly. And so we, we get, what we do is just, is so for, it's so niche. It's so small. You know, I, I won't say that what we do, you know, can be replicated, you know, all over the country and can feed the world because it's, it's not really one of those kind of operations. Um, you know, as, as, as great and humane and wonderful as this is for, for the animals and for us and for our customers, it's just not something that can be replicated everywhere. It's not scalable. Um, but the challenge in that is that it's so foreign, uh, especially to people that don't live in Texas. They don't have any idea, you know, any concept of the size of the properties that we're dealing with. Um, or even how this operation works, you know, with these ranches. If people if people have five acres, they think they've got a big a big piece of land, you know. And five acres is somebody's backyard. Uh, you know, the ranches we're working with, um, you know, most of them are over a thousand acres. If they're below a thousand acres, it, it doesn't really work for us very well. Um, average size is probably around four to six thousand acres, and then you get to these antelope in South Texas, where you are dealing with. 100,000 acre plus plus ranches. I mean, yeah, 240,000 acres is 300 square miles. I mean, that's a, that's a large chunk of land. Um, but the pushback is as well, there, there are, these animals are on ranches. They're not really wild animals. You know, they're, they're kind of ranched animals. They're, they're farmed. And, 
And it's not a true statement because, first of all, they're not a managed animal in the sense that the, the, the ranchers are, you know, there's no husbandry involved, I guess is the way to put it in, the, in these animals. They're not like cattle. They're not like sheep and goats or, or anything else that would be traditional. They're not really, they're not feeding them in the way that they're producing them specifically for food. They just exist on the property. You know, they're, they're, they're out there foraging for, you know, for, for their own natural, natural sources of food. Um, some of these ranches are, are high fenced. Some are low fenced, you know, with free movement of, of travel, even the high fence ranches, uh, there's a lot of holes in these fences. <laughs> so they're, they're, they're constantly moving back and forth. That's how these animals spread. You know, these animals were brought here in the 1930s. Um, the Neil guy to the King ranch and, uh, and then, you know, a lot of the axis deer and some of these other ones to, to a place out here and hunt, you know, just down the road from us. And some of them were bought, sold, traded, and that's how they spread. But a lot of them spread just because they decided to move off property and go someplace else. And that, that still exists today. Yeah. I talked to the person that runs TPW's whitetail program. Um, when I reached out to TPW about who to talk to about exotic game, that's, that's who, who for some reason took the call and he was telling me about Neil guy. And it's funny. I talk to these people now and I just, as a writer, I kind of act like I don't know anything. And so he was telling me all about Neil guy. And he said, yeah, they don't observe high fences. They'll, if they can get their head under it, they'll just raise up and just mm-hmm. pull the fence and just get up underneath it. Yeah. And for, and for people that don't know, so the Neil guy is a large antelope. I mean, it's, it's, it's originally native to India in the Himalayan foothills. And it's uh, live weight and around 300 to 600 pounds you know, for the large, large bulls. So it's a, it's a large animal. I mean, kind of picture um, somewhere around a, a small horse, you know, would, uh, would be about the size of it. Um, it's got these short little stubby horns and it's got this kind of long neck and, you know, it does kind of have a horse, horse head. It is like kind of one of God's early experiments that didn't really, it <laughs> didn't really pan out, but it's got, it's got delicious meat. It, it, it is. And it was brought over, um, as, as really, I think kind of a, 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 uh, beef alternative. Uh, they were, you know, they were really trying to, the King Ranch trying to find some beef alternatives and what they found out was, um, you know, the meat's great, but they're very, very shy animals. Uh, the, the, every animal has what's called a flight range, which means how close can you get to that animal before it's going to decide to run away from you? And every animal has different ranges. You know, you can get within, you know, 50 feet of some animals and a hundred yards of some animals. And the Neil guy have the largest flight range of any animal at 200 yards. So if you try to get within 200 yards of that animal, um, it's going to run away from you. They also have a habit of they they will not eat from a feed trough or any other kind of artificial feed. That's that's been something the biologists have been trying to study these animals, and they won't come into any kind of bait stations or lure stations or anything like that. So they're hundred percent naturally foraging animals, and all of those things combine to make a great wild animal, but a terrible animal to try to domesticate <laughs> if you were going to use it for a domesticated meat source. And so uh, King Ranch abandoned that project and, and, and moved on, but the animals remained and then their numbers just flourished down in South Texas. And they're, they're an amazing looking animal. I always tell people the cows, not so much, but the bulls, a big mature bull 
looks like a Dr. Seuss animal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Big, big body, little head. Um, they're kind of colored. Um, when you see them cleaned up in a picture, they're colored um, kind of differently than when you see them in the wild. So since this range is so far, since you can't get in within 200 yards of these animals, you harvest them from helicopters. Right. So um, we kind of have two two different operations. So when we're, we're hunting the deer, what we call a kind of a hill country animal. So we're, when we're hunting um, uh, axis deer, psychic deer, elk, you know, our primary method is to go to the ranch and drive around the property with the rancher in a vehicle. And we, we, we harvest those animals by gunshot at distances of, you know, kind of 50 to 200 yards away. Uh, and it's, it's almost like, you know, imagine kind of a, a, a sniper uh, a scenario. That's kind of what we're doing there. So it's, it's a little bit slower pace, a little bit more methodical, uh, very, very surgical. Um, and, and then that's how the animals are harvested. The Neil guy, because of the size of the property, um, you know, it's, it's 240,000 acres, but there's probably three roads going through, <laughs> going through the whole thing. It's very hard to, to, to get around and the shyness of the animals. Um, we utilize a helicopter for the Neil guy harvests and they're not necessarily spooked by the presence of the helicopter because the helicopter is out there working all the time. Like they're out there doing game surveys, helicopters out there rounding up cattle, um, you know, just, just any kind of observations they're doing there. So the presence of the helicopter isn't something that's, that's disturbing to them. Um, it's just about every few weeks we go out there and we have a, a shooter, uh, you know, it's sticking out the side of the helicopter and they identify the animals and uh, harvested and again by headshot from, from a helicopter, which is, which is quite a feat. It is not like what I anticipated. I, I had read about y'all for the, like I said, the last 20 years and, and knew a lot about your business and the market finally came to me where the story was, was sellable, where people were interested in some, something like this. And um, I envisioned someone wandering, you know, Hill Country Ranch, like your, like your Axis mm-hmm. shooters. And so when you invited me to this helicopter hunt, we uh, drive down to Kingsville and we all stayed in a hotel, me and your crew. And then we, I followed you out at the crack of dawn to about an hour, 30 minutes from Kingsville, 30 minutes down a road into, into a ranch, 30 yep. minutes of driving into a ranch, turbines to our left. And that's all that we saw. And then we get there and there's the hum of generators and people getting busy, getting ready to, process you've got a uh the processing trailer set up and then you've got a walk-in cooler trailer and we're just waiting and waiting on the helicopter to get there which was something i was looking forward to being a big helicopter fan uh don't have the sensibility to to fly helicopter myself like it's not in my (laughs) skill set i've learned that about me and the helicopter comes in and then i guess the the guys because they they haul this helicopter here Cause it's cheaper than flying it, you know, to the ranch. You just, you haul on the back of a pickup. Right. No, right. most people, when it, it's rare, except in South Texas, you see helicopters hauling around on the back of trucks all the time or back of trailers. And so he hauled it to the entrance of the ranch and then flew it. Cause you said, they don't like to pull the helicopter across a bunch of bumpy roads, flew it in. And then our shooter drives up and it, it was, it was almost like the beginning of a movie, the way that all came together in, uh, the shooter's name's Cody. I talked to Cody yesterday. He's going to be in the story. And he, he gets out of that pickup and he's just, he's just like a ranch cowboy. Yeah. He's got on boots and, but there's a, there's a, 
a, a stillness to him, kind of an ease of, of a guy that's about to shoot 40 animals mm-hmm. and headshots. Pr- really cool guy. And he, you know, they fill the helicopter up and come over and talk to us a little bit and load his gun, his AR-15, and they take off. I mean, it was like, it, he's dangling off the side of this helicopter with his boots and he's got a, um, a, um, a, neck gator over him to kind of protect, I guess, from the, the elements mm-hmm. and they go off, they go off to start finding the guy. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's essentially the process. And I think that that highlights also a little bit of what we talked about when we were riding around was you know, th- this, this is not hunting. You know, there, and there's a difference between uh, going on a hunt and hunting culture, um, which is, which is something that I enjoy and a lot of people uh, enjoy and have experience at and a harvest. And this is business. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're not a, a hunting camp where everybody gets to try on their new camo, uh, play with the latest toys, um, and, you know, sitting around the campfire drinking whiskey all night to wake up early in the morning to, you know, go hungover and go sit in a, <laughs> sit in a blind no. and, 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 you know, kind of glad hand each other. Cause you know, you're out there and you're trying to go out and get, 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 have a good time and get one animal. Um, on a harvest, we're out there to go and get, 40, 50 animals, uh, you know, as humanely, as efi- as efficiently as possible. Yeah. And, um, you know, we've got, what do we have out there for the crew? We had six guys, you know, they're there at the trailer and two guys in the helicopter and, and, you know, b- besides us two you know, two guys riding around in, in, in chase trucks, you know, for, for moving the animals. So we've got a lot of people, uh, that are there, you know, kind of waiting, and and prepared for this operation to to run smoothly. Yeah, we um, pick the pick these animals up in a flatbed, and then haul them to the facility. So the process is they're on the flatbed, five or six deep, uh, piled up back on this flatbed, and then you hoist them up into the processing unit. And so your first two guys skin. So is everybody called a skinner? You're all four guys that are in the trailer. They're, they're all called skinners. Yeah. They're all called skinners there. So, uh, right. So they're brought into the trailer. Uh, well, before that, the only, the only item we do in the field. So after the animals harvested by the helicopter, uh, we do the, the bleeding and electro stimulation, uh, that's, that's there in the field. Uh, and so it's not, it's not dinner talk. So if you're listening at dinner time, you might, you might pause it, but essentially we, we, we stick, uh, a, a knife to sever the arteries, um, carotid arteries coming out of the heart. And then we hook up a electrostimulation machine that runs a current through the animal, uh, causes the muscles to contract. And a lot of the benefit that you get out of that is it squeezes all of the latent blood out of the muscles. So one of the main complaints people have with venison is a gamey flavor. Well, that gamey flavor is really just kind of this irony irony flavor Um, and some of that's inherent to the species and some of that's inherent to the meat some of that is the age of the animal some of that is how it was harvested and how it was processed you know but a lot of it is just the blood that's in the muscles and and um, it kind of comes back to the proper processing part so this squeezes the blood uh, out of the muscles um, which results in a cleaner tasting venison uh, at the end of the process um, it also does some things that help, you know, rapidly move through rigor mortis and helps extend, stel- uh, extend shelf life and starts, you know, impacting, uh, you know, meat pHs and some, you know, meat, meat science-y kind of things. But, 
Um, the main benefit is moving that blood out of the muscles. So we'll do that there in the field and then bring it back to our trailer, processing trailer, um, where it moves in. It does the initial initial skinning, uh, and then it moves into a second station where it gets um, the skinning is finished. It gets eviscerated, basically meaning the intestines come out and uh, the pluck. And uh, we pull the hearts, livers, kidneys. Uh, we're able to harvest those out of that animal. Uh, and then it's quartered and put into the trailer and refrigerated trailer and ready to come home. So you said, you told me at the time that you have a, a, a customer that likes the spleen. Mm-hmm. Does she pre-order and you pull, because I noticed y'all didn't pull spleens the other day. It's mainly a pre-order uh, uh, kind of an item. I mean, it's not a, it's not a, a, a customary item for us to, us to save. Um, yeah. But if it's something that, that we had a customer ask for, you know, we could get, there's not a lot we can get. Um, we're explaining this as well. The, in a traditional slaughterhouse, you know, the, the, the meat goes one direction and kind of all of the internal intestines and other bits go in another direction. And they're, they're, they're processed in separate rooms because you can't really have any of that digestive, uh, juices, you know, exposed to the meat, you know, that would start to taint the meat and, you know, create an unwholesome product. So from an inspection standpoint, they like to keep those very, very, very separate. Since we're essentially a one-room processing house, um, we can't, you know, we can't do a whole lot with the with the intestines. Um, you know, we can pull out some of the external uh, offal, like I mentioned, hearts, livers, kidneys, you know, spleen, you know, some other kind of items. But those are the main main ones. And what I found fascinating was the first two guys put it in a cradle, and so when I, you know, I've started hunting. Older, so I have lots of questions. And, you know, as a kid, you probably start hunting. You go, well, that's just the way Dad did it. I've seen a deer skin about a million different ways, and the cradle was the first time I'd seen that, where they lay it in a cradle and they skin it and and then cut the, um, I guess, the abdomen area, and then um, they pull it back up, continue skinning it, drape the cape over the head, and then the second set of skinners, your longtime guy, Mundo, Mundo, he was with your dad when you right. started. Oh yeah. Uh, watch him work was pretty amazing. He was very efficient when they would gut it. Um, and then he did it just enough to where all the organs were eye level and he just cut it all out as it, as yep. it fell. And then that's handed over to the USDA inspector who was in the trailer. Where do we work from? I keep saying we, I wasn't in the trailer. <laughs> Um, eight till three, eight till five, I think y'all worked, right? Well, right. So the, you know, the actual harvesting and inspection part was probably from, it was about eight, um, uh, about two o'clock is when that part ended. Yeah. Uh, and then we had, you know, we had some cleanup, uh, at the end of that. So we, we finally pulled out of the property around five o'clock. Uh, that it, day. it was a long day and I, I, I didn't cut on anything. Um, so you're severing the, when you, do that initial poke after the, after it's shot and, mm-hmm. and it's, and we've recovered it. I, for some reason in my head, I had that y'all pierce the heart, but you don't, yeah. you pierce an artery. Right. Right. We're, we're trying to reach the, the, the arteries that, that are coming out of the heart, like a, run, running up through the kind of the neck. It's right in the chest. It's basically, it's kind of right where your, 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 your rib bones end and your, your throat begins, you know, on, on the animal, but you're not, you're not going into the, esophagus and digestive yeah. areas you're kind of going right in between is that a tough 
that's not something that just a regular person, I mean, like, cause you were feeling around and Justin, our photographer, he goes, you know, what are you feeling for to know where that is? Yeah. I, I mean, there's a little, there's a kind of a knob there yeah. and it's just, it's just knowing the anatomy a little bit, uh, but there's a little knob there that, that opens up, uh, and you can just feel a little soft spot between, between the rib cage and the, and the esophagus. That, that's the, that was the toughest part of the whole process was they hooked up, hook up these on on the lip and on the on the rear end of the animal and then it it convulses it, it like you know tightens up loosens mm-hmm. up tightens up i'm like this this is the hardest part <laughs> uh, for me and if my like i made this comment if my wife were there i think she might just pass out yeah. to see that animal because it looks like it's alive but it's not it's right i mean it's 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 um you know it's it's contracting those muscles i mean all the muscles are controlled by electrical impulses that your body's sending and this is essentially what it is i mean some people you know, junior high would have an experiment where you hook up an electric current to a frog leg or something, and it would it would cause it to con, you know contract and relax. And you know, it's it's essentially the same process. It was a very interesting balance of of the you know us. You and I rode in pickup, and we followed the chase crew in the in the dualies. And let know. me let me let me interject one thing because some people do get this confused when we're running when we're doing the shocking the animal is dead. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, that's to make that clear. This is not something that we're doing to a no. live to a live animal. I mean, our our, our besides quality, our other mo is, is the humane aspect of, of what we're doing. Yeah, I I should have clarified that. It <laughs> looks like it's alive, but yeah. it, the shooter has gotten a clean headshot, and the animal is completely i mean it's it's obvious because they're they've been piled up it's just they send electricity through its body and it contracts the muscles Mm -hmm. and pumps a little bit of blood out and makes for a really good quality meat yeah so yeah sorry sorry if that was confusing (laughs) to people but yeah they're um like i said very interesting process everyone was working really hard all day long it's a pretty labor-intensive process um, they get the animals in there. I was surprised that the USDA inspector as much work as he did. Cause I mean, he almost, he's basically almost processing as he goes. I mean, he's, he's, you know, he's inspecting the heart, the kidney and the liver. Mm-hmm. You said he has to cut into the heart to check for parasites by, right. by law. Yep. And then he takes all that stuff and puts it in the, I guess that all that is in one container and the walk in the heart and kidneys. Yes. Yes. Well, a couple of containers, but yes. Yeah. And, um, yeah, yeah. It's a hard work, hard job for the inspector too. And they, their requirement is to, for, for slaughter. And this, this is true for us. We ought to play by the same rules as a brick and mortar. You know, they have to see every single animal, every single animal. You know, it's not that he comes in and checks a few of them and spends the rest of the day, you know, just napping in the truck. You know, he's, he's present watching every single animal and, and carefully observing our processes as well as uh, each individual carcass for overall health. I would think that would probably be a better gig than going to like a meatpacking place and, and watching a thousand steers be processed. Yeah, I think it depends on your, on your personality. But for me, you know, it certainly would be a, a nice change of pace. Yeah. Do you have different inspectors each time? Or is it- uh, not necessarily. I mean, there's, there's probably, you know, three, three to four different inspectors that, that work that region, uh, that we have, uh, that, that come out and work with us, uh, specifically, there's more than that down in that area, but there's probably three or four that I guess it suits their personality to, yeah. and their, and their, and their availability to, to come out and work with us. So we were following the chase vehicles and everyone was working, going through the process and the helicopter had landed for just a bit. 
And uh, I got the call up by, by Cody. He I was videoing the whole process with my phone just, just for my, for, as a writer, I do this just so I have a good memory and can check things out. And he, he called me over. He goes, you want to get in the helicopter? Cause we talked about it previously. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, I did, I didn't realize how quick the chase was and how, how they drop down. They veer back him and Jay, the pilot are, are communicating and they get a beat on the animal and, and just drop it from a lot closer than I anticipated. Mm-hmm. And this is a pretty standard procedure. I mean, everyone's above the law. It was just a really, it was an intense, um, helicopter flying. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was really by the, I, I don't know. I think I was in for 45 minutes, maybe an hour and started getting a little nauseous. I thought maybe what we ate the night before was not agreeing with me, yeah. but I realized, Oh, he, this, I'm on a roller coaster that's flying left, yeah. right up, down. And we'd pop up and look at this fantastic landscape. And I don't know if, if that was actually the Gulf that I could see, if that was a little inlet. Um, yeah, we're, it could have been either depending yeah. on where we were. Cause we were, we were just kind of right there between kind of in the corner of Baffin Bay and the, yeah. Baffin and Bay and the, the channel. Yeah. And so these Neil guy yeah. will, will kind of bed up and you, you had a term for it. The little grove, the oaks, oak, oak mots, oak mots. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I was like, man, I got to write that down. Oak mots. Cause it was, it's just a little scrubby oak mm-hmm. and they're just um, kind of bedded down. And uh, Cody told me towards the end when they, they hit a, a, a large herd, is that right? Herd mm-hmm. Neil guy, like 20. And you know, they were taking them. He said they weren't moving hardly at all. They yeah. were just, they'd have to kind of flush them out with the helicopter. Yeah. And it's definitely diminishing returns, uh, on the day and on this, on the process. And so, um, uh, you know, we, we had the privilege of being there in December when, when the weather was, was really, really nice. Um, you know, but certainly in the summertime when it's 120 degrees down there, uh, you, you've got to get the work done early. So, yeah. you know, so the animals, you know, like, like a lot of animals, they're moving early in the morning. Um, they're, they're active, they're feeding. And then as the day, uh, goes on and gets into the afternoon, uh, they take their siesta, you know, <laughs> they, 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 they get up into the shades and they, they relax. Um, and, uh, they just cease to become visible, uh, to us and our crew, uh, to, to even, to even find them. They're not presenting themselves anymore for harvest. And then, you know, what you do see, if you want to try to, um, use a helicopter to encourage them to move into a, a, a an open area where they can be harvested. They, the animal gets a vote. Yeah. Uh, they, yeah. they just, they just say no, thank you. And then yeah. stay where they are. And so y'all, we harvested 40 that day. Right. It was packed pretty, you know, pretty, pretty good day. Yeah. Yeah. That was our goal. 40 was our goal. Uh, that's, you know, that's, that's good. We, we typically look for anywhere from 30, 30 to 50, uh, animals in a harvest. And so let's touch on this. I think this is something you and I both share a love for, and it's, it's chefs, it's fine food. Mm-hmm. Cause I mean, you're providing the finest product to, to these kits, to these restaurants. And like you said, this is not something that's sustainable for a mass audience. This is high end. It's like, you know, prime beef. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, sushi. Or of course, I don't know that we'll ever see a broken arrow venison in a, a, a case at uh, HEB like you see sushi, but that's, that stuff's farm raised. That sushi is, is not probably the best for you. Right. Um, but this goes into how, and you and I had some talks about chefs and uh, your experience as a, as a kid mm-hmm. with uh, Napa in the early years. Right. And right. Uh, 
you were telling me about the cake bread winery. Yeah, I think I think you had asked me. You know, what, we were talking kind of memorable meals. Yeah, you know, your meal from twenty years ago. <laughs> yeah, came up, um, and I guess for, for me, really, probably about twenty years ago as well. Um, it was ongoing. So, um, Jack and Dolores Cake Bread of Cake Bread Sellers out in Napa, uh, as well as um, uh, Bill Schof, who was a hotelier. Um, my father and a few other people were, were around one day and they were, they were just kind of talking about, you know, in Europe, there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, artists and purveyors and it is very much a, a kind of a localized spirit to the food. Um, and here in the United States, you know, I think a statement was made that we just don't have these kind of artists and purveyors that exist in the United States. And, uh, you know, one of them had said, well, you know, that's just not true. We have, we have lots of artists and purveyors, and this and this is early. This is kind of you know now artists and purveyors. You know that's it's kind of a catchword, and, and everybody's trying to be an artist and purveyor. Um, but this is again kind of mid '80s. You know this this concept did not exist, um, uh, or it wasn't as promoted uh, as, as it is now, which is what they intended to do. They said, well, we really want to be able to showcase that America has quality artists and purveyors. And so they began a program called the American Harvest Workshop. Uh, and it ran for, I think, almost 30 years. Uh, and the general concept was that they would invite uh, purveyors uh, to come out and provide provide some product. Um, and this would be us for, for, for venison. It would be, you know, you know high-end gourmet mushrooms, um, you know, cave-grown endive, um, you know, you know, high end, high end lamb, you know, high end duck, uh, you know, high end rabbit, just, just all sorts of just, you know, incredible, incredible ingredients. Um, and then they would invite chefs out, uh, usually about, you know, five or six chefs out. Uh, and it was, it was kind of an educational program and then they would invite press as well. And they'd eventually started inviting some of their wine club, uh, members and, um, so you would, you would learn about, you, you toured, you know, the Napa and you'd learn about the winery and the cake bread side of things. You'd go and tour some of these purveyors that were local to California and the Napa area and, and see their operations, um, and, and learn about them. But then the culmination was two nights of, um, the chefs would be, you know, kind of blind draw, uh, ingredients, uh, and then they would have to create a menu using these ingredients, that were provided by all these purveyors. And uh, as a as a participant, we got to work directly with the chefs and help them prepare these dishes, uh, you know, make a dinner for about, about 80 people, a five-course dinner using all of the different, you know, incredible, incredible ingredients that were coming from all over the country. And it was it was quite an experience. You know, I learned I learned a lot uh, about Food and wine. I learned a lot about the restaurant industry and the processes. I learned a lot, you know, a lot about chefs, and uh, just learned a lot about my passion for food and yeah. cooking. Yeah, and, and so this was you said early '80s, mid '80s. This started early, you know, kind of uh, kind of mid mid to late '80s. And so, how old, uh, how old then, were you at that time? Um, well, so I mean, I certainly wasn't at, at the at the first one. I went later. I was probably I was probably right at 21 when I went to my first. Uh, you know, first, first one. Yeah. One of my, one of my experience, uh, you know, I, as a family, we'd grow up, we'd have, you know, we'd have wine at the table. And so, and you, you, you know, basic education in wine, you know, not much 
education beyond this one's white and this one's red, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, a little bit. And so I'm at one of these events, you know, the, one of the first ones, and um, we kind of did this food and wine pairing demonstration where they set out five different dishes and sauces and, you know, several different wines, and it was mix and match and, and really trying to demonstrate how the right wine with the right food you know, and, 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 and flavor, acidity, you know, so you know, cooking technique can elevate everything. Whereas another pairing might take a great wine and take a great dish, but together they clash and, and, it, and it brings them down. So it was just kind of that demonstration of, of this food and wine pairing, which is it's just intimidating to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so I'm sitting there and I'm kind of back of the room because I'm, you know, I'm kind of one of the one of the guests and the young kid. But of course, everybody else in the back of the room um, is also kind of kind of guests and involved with the winery, winery as well. So I wind up sitting with my with uh, Dolores Cakebread, so the matriarch and incredible chef in her own right, um, because she was back there. The the uh, wine review writer for the San Francisco Chronicle was back there, uh, as well as the wine instructor for the CIA Head Park, uh, Hyde Park. <laughs> so, so that's my that's my crew. So we get into this thing of okay, so everybody start tasting wine and food pairings, and you know, talk amongst yourselves. And <laughs> they were they were all very very kind, and you know, very much an education oriented uh, uh, group. But I would say that my contributions were fairly minimal uh, in that. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you, growing up in this business, you probably had a different perspective and they probably respected what your family, you know, does. Was there other proteins there other than game? Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So steak so, and. Right. Yeah. So they, you know, they would have um, uh, you know, a guy that would Napa Valley lamb that would grow some stuff and Liberty Duck uh, was out there. and um, Any chicken? Uh, there was, there's Petaluma poultry, okay. uh, would, would come out there and, and, you know, and a lot of these names, I mean, these are, you know, these are places that are selling to, you know, we share menus all over the country. Um, these are, you know, great people, great purveyors doing, you know, producing excellent quality products. And the, I, I know the answer to this question, but I've got to ask it for, for the podcast, uh, Michelin star restaurants that y'all serve. We have a few. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think you know you had mentioned. I mean, you know, probably most most famously is the French Laundry um, that's, oh. that's been out there. I thought that was so cool. So we're sitting in Ingram, Texas. You know, it's Ingram small, and it, the the outside of their building's nondescript. Looks like a boardwalk, and they're providing meat to all around you know all around the country, Hawaii, Alaska, which I thought was interesting that you provide game to Alaska because yeah. I assume it's the same laws there. They can't sell native game. Yeah, it's U.S. Um, U.S. law. Yeah. Y'all do elk, uh, nail guy, axis, black buck. Uh, red deer, uh, red deer, psycho deer. Um, yeah, that about rounds it out. Yeah. And, and we talk about the Michelin star restaurant. You know what? I'm, 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 I'm really proud to be in a lot of these high end, uh, you know, globally known restaurants. Um, but I'm also proud to be in mom and pop restaurants, uh, that, you know, they're all around. You know, we've got, we've got one here in town that, that, you know, as I always tell my friend, it's like, he's my best, he's my best customer in Kerr County, Yeah, <laughs> but, but they're, they're, they're everywhere in between. And it really becomes down to, uh, the chef. There's a lot of high end Michelin star restaurants that we could be in, 
but we're not because uh, the because the chef just has a different idea about what he you know, where he wants to, where he wants to take it um and uh there's 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 mom and pop places uh, that, that love what we're doing and and just order and order and order and order and it's a it's a stable you know, you know staple of their menu yeah yeah it, well it I'll let you know our primary audience is Michelin star chef. So, um, we, you know, we have a thousand, I think that listen to the show. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. You know, <laughs> call me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe someday. Yeah. Uh, and like you're talking about, you have Michelin, Michelin star restaurants, but, uh, so after this process that I went through, went to the, the harvest and then, uh, had arranged dinner at a restaurant. We live about an hour outside of Fort Worth. And one of my favorite restaurants in Fort Worth is uh, Bonnell's. Mm-hmm. And he's been around since 2001. Really down-to-earth guy. Um, during the pandemic, he was doing, you know, to-go orders for turkey and stuff. And we we ordered from him for it was like 20, Thanksgiving 2020. And John was out there hustling, loading cars with turkeys. You know, you don't, you don't uh, and in this current era of celebrity chefs, there's a, there are a lot of divas. And John Bonnell is... He is a nuts and bolts guy. He is a hunter. And so I had, I had interviewed him for this story and then told him I'd be coming in the restaurant. And he said, well, just let us know two weeks out and we'll, we'll make sure there's Neil guy on the menu. I'm like, okay, well, this is a web story. I'm, I'm like not to the point in my career where I'm like comfortable demanding things, <laughs> but I reached out and he called your guy, Patrick oh, and yeah. uh, Patrick, uh, well, the, the executive chef, Kobe Purdue. Mm-hmm. And he called and ordered tenderloin. And I guess they don't normally order tenderloin because Patrick says something about, he goes, oh, and he goes, well, we've got a rider coming in. He goes, you know, we've got a rider that is meeting uh, Chris out at the rant. And he goes, what's the same guy? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so we go in and I wasn't sure if John had gotten the email. So I wasn't, I wasn't even sure if Neil guy was going to be on the menu. Mm -hmm. It was Saturday after the harvest on Thursday. And my wife and I go in, we do a five o'clock. So it'd be early enough that wasn't any distractions and they see this and no one's made any mention about, Oh, well, Mr. Weaver, you're here. Which I'm not expecting that, but I don't know if I've been acknowledged. I don't know right. if they're actually right. serving Neil guy. And I hear it on the special, I hear someone order it. And it's funny, the table behind us, the server tells them about Neil guy, or she says South Texas antelope. And then she leaves them and they talk amongst themselves and I'm listening. Uh-huh. And he's spouting all these things about what South Texas antelope is or and I'm like, man, I want to go there. I want to go there and sit down and talk to him. <laughs> and I think she was vegetarian and she didn't get it. And he ordered steak or something. I don't know. But I was like, is the writer. I was trying to soak in what other people's perspective are of South Texas antelope. And so waiter comes by and uh, the chef had sent out a carpaccio. Mm-hmm. And I noticed on the, on the menu that it was venison carpaccio. So I assumed it was Axis. And so we have some Neil Guy Vin, um, carpaccio. And I was like, well, it says venison. So – that clears that up. That right. Venison right. is basically wild game. It, yeah. And we see it, we see it both ways on menus. It's just kind of up to the chef's discretion. Some, some chefs are more comfortable putting, ven- you know, venison on the menu or their diners. Um, it's, it, antelope's an interesting word. You know, some of these guys, you know, if it's venison, you know, they'll be okay with it. Uh, if it says antelope, it scares them away. Other, think- other, other, other customer groups, if they see antelope, it's, it's, and it's an attraction. Uh, so it's, it's just kind of the chefs knowing their own customer bases. Well, you, you think antelope and you think a white meat, raw, not good. 
but mm-hmm. I've, I've had uh, lamb um, tartare yep. in Nashville. And it was, I, I told my father-in-law, who's a voracious eater and an adventuresome eater like me, he goes, oh, I, don't, I don't know if I'd eat raw lamb. <laughs> it, it was amazing. Yeah. So um, my wife got the elk, which came from, is it Comanche meats? Is that a, is that a competitor? Comanche. Um, he rattled off Comanche something. Yeah, I, I'm not familiar with that, but there are. I mean, there there are a lot of. Um, you know, while while we're pro, we're we are the largest domestic source of venison. Uh, there are a lot of small game farms and producers that are kind of doing regional business all all over the place. Yeah. So she she got the. She's like, should I get the? I don't know what else she was looking at. I said, oh, buffalo. Mm-hmm. I said, get the elk, man. Yeah. And, and it, the elk was, it was, you know, had a, a reduction on it and her potatoes were amazing. And then he, the server goes, well, I know you're having the nil guy. Yeah. And which I didn't catch that. My wife's like, yeah, he said that earlier that you were having the nil guy. Mm-hmm. So they know who, they know that you're here. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Cause I'm kind of uncomfortable in that sort of situation. You know, give me a, another year or two. Then I'm going to, I'm going right. to be pompous. When you're and, famous. Yeah. Um, and so they, you know, we did the carpaccio and a salad and, and they bring the entree out and it had been, it was uh, tenderloin, which had been sous vide, bacon wrapped, parsnip puree, um, Brussels sprouts with apples. I mean, it was, yeah, he does a great job. It was best meal uh, 20 years ago. For, I don't even know what yep. that meal was. It's been upstaged. Yeah. This, I mean, and you know, of course the environment and kind of getting, I don't know that we got special treatment, but we were acknowledged and mm-hmm. um, I don't know. The, the chef came out. Kobe and talking here's what he came he comes out because I'd asked the waiter a couple of questions about the elk I said was the elk broken arrow because mm-hmm. I only eat broken arrow meat I don't yeah. know if you know that <laughs> that's I demand this this is in right. my rider and he said no it comes from uh, Comanche mm-hmm. and I don't I didn't really understand if that was the the company or the, if it came from actual Comanche Com- Texas Com- yeah might have been something from yeah. Razor up in Comanche and uh, the executive chef comes out and he's got a meat eater hat on. <laughs> I don't know if he put that on for me, but he and I bonded over hunting <laughs> yeah. and uh, chatted a little bit about the, the meat being sous vide and then reverse seared. Yeah. So now we're getting into deep food nerd Sure, talk. yeah, that's great. Um, that's exactly how you should do it. Yeah, too. and we finished off with um, uh, dessert. The manager came over and talked to us, and it's a, it's a fantastic meal. Yeah, it, yeah it's a great place. Um, wine, we had wine. I mean, it was, we were out of there though. We were home by eight o'clock. It's like an old person evening. <laughs> you know? And that's what Benel's is so understated. You, you, you drive up and uh, it just looks like a regular old, you know, it's like a windmill and it's yeah. right, right off of um, a highway. And yeah. you know, it's not noisy. It's, it's not a, you know, interstate. It's just like a, I think it's 183. And then you walk in and it's just the, that first little bar area is you know, spectacular. It's just got a great vibe. And John's got the seats all kind of partitioned with these little framed out. But I think that speaks to John and his personality. It's really, you know, it's, you know, it's very, very, very humble, um, but high, high quality inside. Yeah. yeah and and <clears throat> I've reached out to some other um, chefs and haven't, but John was immediately jumped on an interview and, but some of your early adopters and we'll wrap this up because you know, you've got to get back to work and <laughs> I've got to drive to big spring, Texas. Yeah. Um, Dean Farring. Mm-hmm. Yep. Stephen Piles. Yep. And Robert. Robert Del Grande. Yeah. Yeah. That's like the yeah. Mount Rushmore of Southwest. Coast well, and that's, and that's, it's really, you know, I think, I think we, it was very symbiotic. Uh, at the time that, that dad was starting the company up in the early eighties, 
that was when those chefs were up and coming and it was starting the, the Southwest cuisine, uh, Mark Miller, uh, as well out of New Mexico, yeah. um, you know, was part of that. And, you know, it, it, deer and antelope were just a natural fit with their style of cuisine and what they were starting to, to promote and build. Um, and I think that without us, uh, that movement, I'm not really tooting my horn, the horn here. It's like, I think without us, that movement would not have been as successful because it would have been missing some key ingredients. And likewise, um, without them and that Southwest food, mo food movement, you know, I don't think we would have been as successful either. You know, it really gave a, certainly a, an outlet for what we were doing as, as well as, um, you know, just, just kind of giving us the bona fides of, of, of who we are and, and, and what we're about. Yeah. Uh, apparently they have a band fearing piles and yeah, they're all, they're all great musicians. Are they really? <laughs> I didn't realize that. Uh, I don't know. Chefs are, it's just a fascinating career. Creative. Yeah. They're all creative. And probably 30 years ago, there was no celebrity chef culture. Yeah. And so I, I grew up watching is on discovery channel. It's called great chefs across America. And it was just a, a chef in a kitchen cooking with, like it was all stainless steel lighting was poor, but that was, you know, mm -hmm. what I gravitated towards. And then when the food network and Emerald Agassi and I, that did not appeal to me at all that, yeah. to me, the bam and all that. But, <laughs> um, I, I'd like, I liked the the nuances of, of cooking and right. the technique and people who pursue that passion. Cause it's a rough career. I mean, you work oh, yeah. long hours and it's hard. Yeah. That was, that was part of what I learned was, uh, you know, in working cause those guys would come out to the ranch. Those guys would come you know, early on come and visit and take them out to hunting camp and I'd get to see them, um, you know, play with their extracurricular activities and such. But, it, you know, but I hear, I hear their stories. And so I thought about being a chef for a period of time, but then also pretty quickly saw what that lifestyle was like and decided to make it a hobby more than a career. But, but those, those guys, I mean, so like, you know, Dean, uh, Dean, his, his restaurants, fearing still orders from us. He's, you know, he's been a customer forever. Uh, Stephen Piles, uh, continues to, you know, uh, open new places and he, you know, he's, he just ordered, uh, some, some stuff you know, very, very recently, you know, so these guys are still around. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I guess Stephen Piles is doing kind of, um, event stuff and, mm -hmm. and one-on-one, um, you, so you, you purchased the business from your father in 2003, 2010, 2010, came, yes. came back to work in 05 and then, uh, completed the purchase in 2010. What were you doing before that? Oh gosh. All sorts of stuff. <laughs> uh, had a stint in advertising for a while. Uh, my wife and I worked overseas in the Balkans, uh, for Brown and Root doing, uh, Army logistics support contract, civilian contractors okay. over there. Um, and uh, um, got an MBA at Wake Forest and then started having kids and came back here. So I, I always say I'm the uh, world's most highly educated butcher. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so there were, when we did the harvest on Thursday of last week, there was a helicopter on the property. And I think uh, you and I of a certain age were, were similar similar age group, um, Airwolf was brought up. Right. And uh, so I did a little research on you and I don't know if this is a true story, but it, when I pulled up the IMBA on 
Airwolf that says that you were a stunt double for Jan Michael Vincent. <laughs> Is that a true story? Uh, that's completely false. Okay. <laughs> You're probably too young. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't think I'd have made. I don't think I'd have made that. It'd have, it'd have been fun. <laughs> it, it isn't. The name is interesting. So I haven't. I haven't heard that one. I'm also the the drummer for Adam Ant, the old the old okay. '80s the old '80s I can, band. I can't place him, but and um, I, I did. You talked about going to a restaurant and and you know not knowing whether or not you're you're recognized. You know. I, I walked into a restaurant one time and um, actually I think I was by myself as well. And uh, it was a customer of ours. So I, I told him who, who I was and I was, I was here for dinner and I was having a cocktail and, um, you know, but I, I, I told them my name. I didn't necessarily tell them who, who I was with. And all of a sudden the, uh, the GM comes over, general manager comes over and he says, excuse me, are, are you, are you Chris Hughes? Yes, sir. Are you the Chris Hughes? I said, well, I said, I don't know. I said, I'm a, I'm a Chris Hughes. Who, who are you looking for? And he said, Chris Hughes, co-founder of Facebook. <laughs> and I went, nope, that's not me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you go. But but you know you could probably get some pretty good uh, pretty good service if you go around as Chris Hughes co-founder of Facebook. Yeah, <laughs> have people told you you look like Jan Michael Vincent? No, they haven't. Okay. I haven't heard that one. Uh, that, so this is my bit with this podcast. And when I did my first one with my good friend photographer, he's uh, forty, and so I I did the same thing to him. I you know you watch enough, you listen to enough radio shows, you know that you go, well. I see here on your one sheet that you were an extra in Footloose, and he's forty years old, right? And so he played along with it. And I, and I, I did one with Justin, our photographer, from the other day, and Justin's thirty, mm-hmm. and I forgot to do it with him. I, t- I, was, I told him after the fact. I said, "Yeah, I was going to ask you if you were an extra in the movie Heat, because he, uh, Justin's, he's a hunter and a concealed carry person. He's 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 a character. Yeah, Justin's very self sufficient. Like, yeah." If I get if the zombie apocalypse comes, I want to be with Justin because he he's a country boy can survive. Yeah, he is the yeah. Hank Williams Jr. song to the T. Well, I think I think man, we've covered just about everything. How's this been? It's yeah, been, it's great. Yeah, yeah. no, I loved it. I, I loved appreciate it. you doing this, and this this helps me with narrating with kind of getting the narrative for my story, which I've already got in my head. But one last thing mm-hmm. with uh, so I can get it down on a recording. You talked about how you age the meat. So right, right. That process is sure. So um, after the animals harvested, and at the end of the end of the day, end of the night, it's brought back here to our plant in in Ingram, where it kind of goes through a double aging, double processing process, uh, double butchering process. So the the first step is that it ages um, kind of whole whole carcass or quartered carcass. Uh, for about three to five days. It's kind of a dry aging process. And then at that point, it's cut into the primals, which would be a whole bone-in leg, whole bone-in saddles. Uh, and those are vacuum sealed and goes into what's called a wet aging process uh, for a total of uh, 21 to 30 days. Um, and the wet, wet aging doesn't mean we've added anything to, you know, we haven't added anything any liquids or anything. All that means is that we're preventing the evaporation of moisture because venison's so lean uh, that if you were going through a dry aging process for 30 days, like you would on a, on a beef rack, um, it just doesn't have the fat 
no, no marbling, no surface fat, you know, that would help provide that moisture and flavor. It would just be dry. So the wet aging process, you don't get evaporation, but you still get these natural enzymes that are in the muscles breaking down you know, connective tissues, breaking down muscle tissue, just tenderizing the meat, developing the flavor. Um, and then we'll sell those whole primals to restaurants um, kind of once they've gone through the, or, you know, in the middle of the aging process and they'll do the butchering on their end. Uh, and then once the aging process is done, anything that's not sold as fresh, we bring back into our meat room where we'll bone it out to the individual muscle cuts, uh, package it, freeze it. Cause at that point it's a fully aged product. So all of our frozen products, a fully aged product. Um, it's kind of like climbing up this mountain of quality you know, you go, go, go. And then once you reach the top of the mountain, you start going down the other side. And so we try to stop it, you know, right there at that peak of quality, um, freeze the product. And then that's what gets sold out to restaurants and individuals. Yep. That was the most surprising thing I learned starting hunting late. I reached that, I reached out to you for the story of the processing. Cause you, you guys are experts on, on processing. And I reached out to Jesse Griffiths and, uh, everyone that said, Yep. If we can let the animal sit for two weeks, that's what we do. Mm -hmm. And I naively thought you want it, you want it, you know, as quick as possible. Let's get this thing. Well, you want it gutted as quick as possible. Right. Get the heat out of it. But, you know, you age it like a fine steak, like a good piece of beef. Yeah. Yeah. And meat's more durable than people give it credit for. Um, but it definitely benefits from that aging process. Yeah. Well, this, and this, uh, you and I have had these same conversations a couple of times now in pickup and on the first interview. So I appreciate you, you know, sitting down with me and having a, like an official podcast chat. This is yeah. hopefully the first of many of these when I do these stories, because I meet some really interesting people and I, I feel like after this hits the air, Joe Rogan's going to reach out to you because <laughs> well, this is right up his alley. You know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And he was talking the other day about, about hunting and, and game and stuff and having venison. And I'm like, he doesn't. I think you probably understand you can't sell native game, but right. I'm like, golly, there's so much in this that he, he needs to learn and, and talk to Chris. Yeah. So when I see him at the, at the, down at the coffee uh, shop. Yeah. I'll, put in, I'll, put in a good word. Yeah. Put in a good word. Yeah. I do have a restraining order, yeah. so I don't, he doesn't, I don't know. <laughs> I know. think he can take care of himself. That's, what, that's what's funny is a guy that yeah. tough has a restraining yeah. order on someone like yeah. me. Yeah. So. But no, it's, it's been a pleasure. I yeah. loved, loved having you out. Yeah. Uh, glad you came on the harvest and uh, out here to the plant and got, get to show you what we do. Yeah. I got to ride in a helicopter, watch animals. Get yeah. I've learned a lot about. You got a great job. Yeah. About processing. Um, I'm going to hunt the last season, the last weekend of whitetail, and I'm going to put some of these. And then we'll, we'll get another odd ad for, um, I'll talk to you about getting an odd ad. And that was delicious. So yeah. you've inspired me to eat all kinds of stuff. Well, it's good. been great. Pure, pure, pure wild meat. You know, clean, cleanest meat on the planet. And the, the Jan Michael Vincent thing was just off the top of my head. But now as I sit here and look That's at you, funny. you do look like Jan Michael Vincent. You ever seen the movie Hooper? It's, it's, the, it's the gray hair coming in, I think yeah. is what you're saying. It's the smile. <laughs> Have you ever seen the movie Hooper? Hooper. No, I don't think I've seen that one. So that's uh, after smoking the bandits. Yeah. Got, uh, Burt Reynolds. It's about stuntmen. If you ever move, remember the show, the fall guy. Yeah. Yeah. So as a precursor, it begat the fall guy. It's, okay. It, it's one of the best movies ever made. It was one of those Hal Needham stunt fist fight, jumping off, yeah. jumping into airbags, helicopters. Right. So that, that's going to be on your homework list. I'll have to look that one up. All right. Well, thanks so much, Chris. All right. Yep. Absolutely, Brandon. Thank you. Thank you.